along as best you can as I read. But I know that the king, this is God speaking to Moses, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. Okay, and now chapter 4, 18 to 23. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. The Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. Moses took the staff of God in his hand. The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people of Pharaoh go. And then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Now chapter 5, after Moses has uh, gone back to Pharaoh. Uh, afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord. Moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let, please let us go a three-day journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of Israel are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go themselves and gather straw. But the number of bricks they've made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it. They're idle. Therefore they cried, Let us go and Offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. Now verse 19. The foremen of the people of Israel saw they were in trouble when they said, You shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh. And his servants, and you put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? Since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's done evil to this people. You've not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. With a strong hand, he will send them out. With a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. All right, let's pray together. Great Heavenly Father, we pray that you would show us wonderful things in your word. Press them into reality in our hearts, we pray. Amen. Uh, Jim Morris was a young, phenomenal pitcher who uh, suffered a number of career-ending injuries. He never made it out of the minor leagues. And uh, he settled in and uh, had a family and started teaching high school science. And one year, uh, he was coaching a middling high school baseball team. They sort of gave up on him. When one of the players had an idea, Coach, we'll make a deal with you. If we win districts this year, you have to go try out for a major league team. And now it's a good bet because they were a middling team. They'd never won districts before. But improbably, they won districts. And when Jim Morris at the last moment really wanted to back out, the fact that his eight-year-old son looked up to him made him go to this tryout. 
And so Jim Morris, mid to late 30s, showing a little gray perhaps, shows up, an old dad at the Tampa Bay Double Rays uh, Major League tryout for spring training, thinking it was a waste of time. And all the players there and all the scouts there and all the coaches there were sure it was a waste of time. In fact, he was the last person to take the field that day. And uh, they didn't want him to throw. They were afraid he was going to hurt himself. And they told him, you're wasting your time. But because you made this promise to your team and your son, we'll let you throw. It's a nice story, isn't it? Well, uh, Moses shows up in the court of Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, it would seem. And Moses has a pitch of his own. It goes sort of like this. Um, this God you've never heard of, he's met with us, and he basically told me to tell you that you should let us go. Now, uh, does Pharaoh have any reason to take this old man with the staff in his right hand seriously? This claim that God, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has taken interest in these nobodies, these slaves, should I even bother with this? This claim is going to escalate in this chapter and in this book into an outright contest, a combat, actually, for the souls and bodies of these people. And here at the beginning, really, there's no reason to believe that God's going to win. I mean, if you know, unless you're already coming in with a little bias uh, on the God camp. But Pharaoh, does he have any reason to be concerned? Well, as the Tampa Bay Devil Rays were walking off the field that day and the scouts were sort of shutting things down, uh, Jim Morris took the mound, and no one was paying any attention until the sound of the first pitch hit the glove. Thwap! And echoed throughout the field. You see, uh, 35-year-old men aren't supposed to throw that fast. And Jim Morris proceeded to throw 12 98-mile-an-hour fastballs in his late 30s. He had no idea he could do it. And tonight, on the verge of battle, in this contest for the souls of the people of Israel... That is the issue. Old man Moses, some strange God, what you got in that arm of yours? Because this is nothing but a battle of strength. This is a contest. God, are you mighty to save? Do you have the power in your right arm that you say you have? Should we really believe this? Do we have any reason to believe that you can do this? And tonight we're going to see that you should never underestimate. You should never underestimate the saving power of a Heavenly Father. I'm going to ask three questions tonight, hopefully answer them adequately. Who is the sovereign? What's at stake? How can we be sure? This is a crowd of people coming to join us. Uh, who is sovereign? What's at stake? How can we be sure? So the first question, who is sovereign? And some of you may be thinking at this moment, because you're theological nerds, all right, I've been waiting for this for years. You're going to like cross all my theological T's and dot all my I's. I love this word. Actually, I'm not going to do that right now. Um, I'm simply going to try and settle a dispute or actually describe the dispute to you, and it's this. Who's the real king? Who's the champ? Who's the superpower? In chapter 5, as Pharaoh enters, excuse me, Moses enters Pharaoh's court, if you will, this is sort of like a heavyweight boxing match. And, uh, you know, if you've never seen one, it sort of works like this. Uh, the champion comes in last. The challenger comes in first. And that's sort of what happens here. The, Moses presents the challenger, it seems, the Lord. From Pharaoh's perspective and the people of Israel's perspective, this makes sense. We know 
who Pharaoh is. Who's the Lord? He presents himself as the God of Israel, the God of the Hebrews. And Moses goes on to say, this God's met with us. Now remember, I talked about this last week. God of the Hebrews would not have been an impressive title to anybody. They're a bunch of slaves. I mean, these are your credentials. You're a has-been. Even if you are a real God, you're a God of a bunch of nobodies. But Moses goes on and says, this Lord, this God has met with us, and he, he has a claim on us, and he demands that you let us go. He's claiming that these people are his. Now, um, that's the challenger, the Lord, at least from this text perspective in some ways. Now let's meet uh, what the people would have considered the champion, Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Chapter 5, verse 2. And, uh, yeah, I should flip over. Uh, Pharaoh is the undisputed king of the land of Egypt, one of the most powerful men in the world. And uh, he would have also been considered by all the Egyptians and probably many of the Israelites as something more than just a normal king. Uh, It was common for Egyptians to view their kings as having a divine lineage commonly understood that the king, that the pharaoh, was a son of the gods and also responsible for upholding the created order. And uh, the kings wore this mantle with pride. They believed this. And so it's not surprising that in chapter 2, 5, verse 2, Pharaoh says, who's the Lord? Why should I listen to him? I don't know him. I'm not going to let you go. Now, an interesting thing here to note is that uh, is a powerful king of a large country. Uh, Pharaoh would have been familiar with all the gods of Egypt, and there were many, and all the gods of the surrounding nations, and there were many, and all the gods of the various slaves, which he owned, and there were many. And some of those slaves throughout history, this is proven, had come to him and said, hey, uh, we need to go sacrifice to our gods. Can we go for a while? And they said, yes. They really did. Historically, this has happened. In this case, he says, don't know your God, don't care, and you can leave now. You're, I'm not letting your people go. And uh, what we see is a stubborn refusal, a defiance. And then he goes on in the rest of the chapter to treat Israel like he's their God. I own your bodies, I own your souls, and you guys got a lot of free time to cook up these crazy tales. So uh, how about I give you some more work? And even in verse 10, which we don't have up here, chapter 5, verse 10, he speaks like a god. The, the foremans, the, basically the taskmasters of the Egyptians, say to the Israelites, Thus says Pharaoh. So in our text, we always read, Thus says the Lord. Well, Pharaoh talks like this too, about himself. Pharaoh believes he's a god. These are our combatants, our contestants, if you will, on who's sovereign. The Lord or Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And the real question is, who has the upper hand as this battle gets started? Now, as the battle gets started, it seems it's Pharaoh. In chapter 5, verses 4 and following, he immediately ratchets up the pressure on the people. Oh, you stupid Israelites. I mean, life's already bad enough for you. Now you've got to go and do this, so here's more work for you. He increases their suffering so much so that in verse 21, uh, some of the Israelite leaders come to Moses and say, thanks, Moses. Good job. You put, a, you put a sword in his hand to kill us. He has the power to kill us, and you gave it to him. It would seem to the Israelites that Pharaoh has the upper hand. 
Well, Moses, Lord, what do you have in this battle? What do you got? What's in the arsenal? And, uh, and we see a couple of things. Early on, the very first text we read, chapter 3, 19 and 20, God says, uh, listen, I know what this is going to go like. Pharaoh's not going to listen. I'm going to have to compel him. He's not going to listen to reasoning. So I'm going to use my mighty hand. I'll compel him, and I'll stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders. He's talking about the plagues or wonders we'll talk about in the next few weeks. And uh, he goes on in chapter 5, verse 3, to make a prediction. This is what Moses does. I'm not going to keep flipping back and forth all night. He makes a prediction. And uh, this is sort of awesome to me because uh, this sort of reminds me battle is just getting ready to start. This reminds me of all the pre-fight hype that ha- happens in a boxing match, which is usually better than a boxing match, where guys just talk smack and uh, say all kinds of things about one another. And um, there's a famous prediction from a boxing match that none of you have probably ever seen except for Seth. He's here tonight. Uh, this is from Rocky II, a prediction made by Clubber Lang, one of the most punishing boxers of all time. And uh, not only does he punish you and destroy his opponents, but he's uh, just seems angry. And so uh, in a pre-fight conference, someone asks him, do, do you hate Rocky Balboa? No. I don't hate Balboa. I pity the fool. <laughs> well, what's your prediction for the fight then? Prediction? Yeah, prediction. Pain. <laughs> awesome prediction, right? <laughs> right? And that's exactly what Moses is predicting. Chapter 5, verse 3. Listen, Pharaoh, I know you don't believe me, and you've rebuffed me already, but listen, if you don't let my people go, you need to know that Yahweh, the Lord, has the power to strike you, strike us with pestilence and the sword. You might think he's a nobody, but he can bring the pain. And so we've already seen the battle for sovereignty. Who's the real king? What's at stake? Why all this macho bravado, fighting stuff. I mean, can't you boys just work it out? I mean, what are you fighting for? What's the stake here? And uh, we see this in chapter 4, 22 and 23. It's on the text here uh, at the bottom. Uh, the state, what's at stake is the sun. It's a sun. It's the fact that Israel, who are in slavery, they're God's firstborn son. And God wants them to be free. They're not his people by birth. They're not his people by merit. They didn't earn this distinction. They haven't done anything to deserve this. By his own grace, he set his affection on them, and he loves them, and he wants them. He considers them his firstborn son. Pharaoh's ignorant of this claim. He doesn't care. He hears the claim. What does he do? He actually increases their torment. And so uh, God at this point raises the stakes. Knowing this, okay, Pharaoh, you're going to hit me where it hurts. You don't think I'm serious? They're my son. And uh, this contest between you and me, it involves my son, and now involves your son too. You're going to let my son go, or I'm going to take your son. Verse 23. It's a son that's at stake, and it's also service. Verse 23. Let my son go that he may serve me. And the question here, really, the issue is, who are these people going to serve? They're going to serve somebody. Uh, Bob Dylan was right. you got to serve somebody. You don't get to be autonomous. Sorry, guys. No one in the world ever thought this except for your generation. Um, you don't get to be free to do whatever you want. Sorry. Uh, you really do have to serve someone. 
Uh, and here, it's very clear. They're going to serve Pharaoh. In chapter 5, verse 9, the same word is used. When it says he makes their work harder, that word work is service. It's the same work here. And the, and the choice is this. These people, the Israelites, they're either going to serve God, he's going to redeem them, bring them out, they're going to worship him and love him and follow him and obey him and become more like him. That's the kind of service God offers. Or they're going to serve Pharaoh. That is, he's going to break their backs and break their souls as he do, they do his will. A son in their service is what's at stake. Before there was Ransom, Taken, the movie Taken, there was the movie Ransom. And uh, I actually think Ransom was a little better. But uh, anyway, in uh, Ransom, Tom Mullen's being played by uh, Mel Gibson. And uh, Tom Mullen's son, Sean, is kidnapped and held for a $2 million ransom. No, you know, Taken is probably much more than that. Anyway, after... Uh, after Tom Mullen learns that the kidnappers can't be trusted, shouldn't be a surprise to anybody, uh, and there's no guarantee that he'll ever get his son back, he decides to turn the ransom into a bounty. When kidnappers later get to his wife and repeat the threat, if he doesn't pay, we're going to kill the boy, Mullen actually raises the stakes. Okay, I'm not removing the bounty. I'm not paying a ransom. There's now $4 million on your head. And in a famous uh, phone confrontation, the kidnappers make one last threat. Pay or your son dies. And Mullen responds, no. No, you're not going to touch him. You're not that stupid. Is it, is it dark where you're calling from? Like a cellar? Like a cave? Well, you better get used to it. Crawling in the dark for the rest of your days. Who do you, and then at this point, the kidnapper breaks in in anger. Who do you think you're dealing with? Give me the money. Tom Mullen responds, don't you understand English? No money. None. Never. But don't get my son back. Real soon, you better kill yourself. By the time I'm finished, you're going to wish you weren't born. Then famously, give me back my son. This is the kind of God we're dealing with in the text. Really. It's a father who doesn't mess around. He's not taking any stuff from anyone. He's not going to be bought off. He's not going to back off. He's going to come and take his son. At this point, God is putting, just like Tom Mullen did, putting Pharaoh and his son on the field of battle. I need to talk for just a moment about the idea of God as Father. Because it's a, it's a dominant theological reality in the Bible. God is often presented as a Father. And... Um, that's hard for some people, and it's, it's actually hard for lots of us, but it's hard for some more than others. And for some of you, maybe potentially painful, because you have a hard time thinking of God as Father. Maybe you love God, you just don't want to think of Him as Father, because you've got so many bad associations with Father. Uh, maybe your Father was a law driver. You just had to perform for Him, and if you didn't perform for Him, you didn't feel like He loved you. And you were never good enough. Or maybe your Father was distant. Maybe He did love you, but He just wasn't around and didn't say it. Or maybe your father was abusive and never expressed love for you. And so it's hard for you to think of God as father. It's painful for you to do so. And uh, I don't want to dismiss that at all. Uh, but I do want you to consider this. Um, your father, in that case, was not the kind of father he was supposed to be. You need to know that. None of us have perfect fathers. Um, but all fathers are supposed to live up to this father. God the father is the ultimate father. And every father falls short of that. Uh, 
But your poor father is not a reason not to think of God as father. This is a father that we've seen already in these texts over the last few weeks. He sees, he knows, he cares. He cares about his children. He's not weak and passive, nor is he passive-aggressive, like so many dads are. But he's strong and he's present. And he loves. He doesn't love because of anything you've done or haven't done. He loves because he's gracious and you're his child. He loves. And he wants you close. And in this case, he loves you enough to say, I'm going to come and get you no matter what. So we've talked about who's sovereign. we talked about the stakes. And now I'm going to ask the question, how can we be sure? And really, the issue here is two things. Can we be sure that God's going to win this battle? Or is Pharaoh right? Uh, Pharaoh goes on and says, um, hey, guys, get back to your work. This is the bottom of the first paragraph. Let heavier work be laid on the men so they won't labor and pay no regard to lying words. And it would seem that the Israelites have uh, caught on to this. Pharaoh has driven a wedge between Moses and the people. Moses, we can't trust you. You said you were going to do this, and uh, you just made life miserable for us. They don't want to believe. They're, they're, they don't think God can win. And secondly, are we even sure we want God to win? Now, for some of you, it's like, how can you even ask that question? Of course we want God to win. Really? Because Israel and Moses aren't even sure. They're not even sure they want the battle to keep going. Right here, verse 9, 19 and following, all we've done is make things worse. Why don't you just, why do you even send me? It's worse. Why don't don't we just leave them alone? Even Moses doubts. How can we be sure that God will win and that his victory is what we want, what we need? And I'm going to talk about power here for a minute. And uh, three kinds of power. Uh, the first I'm calling right-handed power. It's the power we see in verses uh, 19 and 20 in chapter 1. Uh, I know the king of Egypt won't let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. And this is sort of the kind of power you would typically expect for a powerful king to exercise. Thus I say and thus I do. And it's done. I give a command and it's done. It's executive power. Uh, And you sort of see an example of this in verses 21 to 23. God saying to Moses, hey, when you go back to Egypt, see you do all these things. What he's doing, this is before the fight, before the contest, before the game. God's calling a shot. Now, if you're familiar with sports terms, this is sort of like you walk up to the plate and you say, this next pitch is going over the wall. It's a little arrogant. Um, God right here is calling a shot. He's saying, Moses, this is what's going to happen. You're going to go. You're going to do the wonders. He's not going to listen. And then I'm going to take his son. That's actually the last thing that happens, the last play. God knows exactly what's going to happen. Um, it's because he has absolute power and right-handed power. His, his power is so mighty, his right-handed power, that uh, chapter 6, verse 1, at the very bottom it says, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh with a strong hand. He'll send them out with a strong hand. He'll drive them out of his land. What he's saying is, hey, Pharaoh has a strong hand. My hand is so strong and mighty, I'm going to force his hand to act. Not only will he let you go, he's going to, you can't get out of here fast enough for him. God's mighty hand will force Pharaoh's hand. It's been 17 years since I've seen this. And I still remember it, and probably will still remember it until I start to lose my mind or die. And uh, it was 1995, and I don't know why I was doing this, but I was watching the World's Strongest Man competition, in which I saw two giant men, and they really were giants, like... Well, I'm sure they were roided up. Anyway, uh, and they were arm wrestling. 
which was like the only normal thing to do in World's Strongest Men competitions. Usually they like flip cars and carry giant <coughs> cement objects around. They were arm wrestling, which actually seemed sort of legitimate. And actually they were so huge that it was just reasonable to think, like, this will go on forever. Like they were both massive. You just thought, we'll be here all day. Wrong. One guy broke the other guy's arm, snapped it like that. I mean, the other guy weighed 350 pounds. He was all muscle. And the other guy broke his arm. And what God is saying right here, I believe, is I have the right-hand power to take Moses' mighty hand and do whatever I want with it. Yeah, you're also freaking out over that. Actually, I went back today to watch it, and I was like, <laughs> like it happens now, right? Like, I don't want to see it. Yeah. Um, so in this contest of might, God has the right-handed power. He has absolute power. So much so in verses 21 and 23, not only will I do with his hand what I want, this is hard. I'll do with his heart what I want. It says right here in the middle of the text, verse 21 through 23. Where is this? But I will harden his heart so he will not let the people go. Now, profound mysteries. Oops, we're out of time. I mean, we could have all night, and I could talk about this forever, and we'll never get to the bottom of it. Um, but we'll take a few things away from it just to start with. Um, God means what he says. And throughout the next couple chapters, we're going to see a couple things happen. The text is going to say sometimes Pharaoh hardened his own heart. The Pharaoh hardened his heart. And sometimes it's going to say the God hardened his heart. And sometimes it's just going to say his heart was hardened. And I'm just going to draw this down to a few conclusions and move on. One, they're both true. Humans are completely responsible for their actions. Pharaoh, you're 100% responsible for your refusal to listen, and you will suffer the consequences. As humans, we're responsible agents. And we suffer the consequences. And at the same time, the Bible says this over and over. God is completely 100% sovereign. He does whatever he wants. Nothing can stay his hand. And we really would like to logically figure that out. And the Bible doesn't give us the answer to that. And if you don't like that, then you could either decide that you're smarter than anyone in the Bible. Or you can just wait until you get to glory. Or you can argue about it endlessly forever. Uh, you know what mo what Paul does, he wrestles with it and wrestles with it and then says, all right, praise God, uh, his, thinking's not, <laughs> his thinking's not like mine. That's what he does in Romans 9. Uh, praise be to God, he burst out into the, the psalm and says, God's not like us. Um, and that's about as far as I can go with you on this. Besides to say, we can also know this for sure. God's going to win this battle. God can win this battle. God's going to win this battle because of his right-handed power and his absolute power. Now, at this point, some of you actually may be disturbed by this to say, well, I'm not even sure I want this kind of God. Um, and some of you may be saying, well, that's great and all, but um, i got some other issues. And this is where I need to bring in one other aspect of his power, and then we're done. And that's his left-handed power. So right-handed power is sort of the power of the mighty king. Left-handed power is sort of more the Sneaky, subtle, subversive, power through weakness kind of thing. And um, we have here only a hint at it. Chapter 4, 23, it really is the, the thinnest hint. Let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I'll kill your firstborn son. It's the whole son for a son motif. And it's actually going to show up again later in the book. And it runs throughout all the Bible. Um, and it's this idea. God's going to redeem these people, the Israelites, 
by the strength of his mighty arm. He is. He's going to bring them out. You know what happens next? Almost nothing good, really. You know why? Because they're stubborn. They're faithless. They don't serve him faithfully. They don't want to serve him. They want to go back to Egypt. God has the power to bring them out with his right hand of power. But what is he going to do about their hearts? How is he going to change their hearts? And the answer is left-handed power. And it looks like this. It's not just Pharaoh's son. It's not just the Passover lamb we're going to read about. Ultimately, it's the perfect son. It's Jesus. Comes of his own volition. Lives the perfect life as a beloved son. He is God's firstborn son. Lives the perfect life the Israelites were supposed to be. To live. They, he was what they were supposed to be in every way. He dies the death they were supposed to die. He dies the death they deserved. His life and his death ransom their own. And so it's by clinging to Jesus, not just them, but us, clinging to him by faith, that we become one with Jesus. It's how we experience God's forgiveness. It's how we're made right. One son comes and lives perfectly and suffers and dies so that the rest of his children may actually live with God. We're adopted into the family. This is what's going to, we're going to see this pictured later in Exodus and the Passover. And this is the reality of Scripture. We are not the children we're supposed to be. We're not the perfect sons. You don't get into God's family by being good enough. You get in because there was one son that was good enough, lived a perfect life, and died a death that we deserved. And by knowing him and trusting him, we're brought into the family. That is God working his power through weakness. That's left-handed power. He let himself die for us. In other words, conclusion, the Heavenly Father has done absolutely everything in his mighty power. Left-handed, absolute, right-handed, everything to save. He's done everything to save. And he's done it all out of love. A couple questions for you, and then we're done. It's always good in a text like this, it's so black and white sometimes, you know, two combatants say, where am I? Am I ringside watching this? Where are we in this story? We don't get to be God. That's just sort of the way it is. You don't get to be him. Um, so three other options here. You can be Israel, you can be Pharaoh, or you can be Moses. And some of these may be more true of you than others, or maybe all three true at once in some way. So let's take a shot. Perhaps you're like Pharaoh, living as though you're the king. We read Psalm 2, which talks about the kings of the earth taking their stand and rebelling against the Lord and his shackles, they want to be autonomous. You know what? In America, we don't want to be anything more than we want to be autonomous. Every single one of us wants to be our own king and queen, to run our own life. We really do. Isn't college like the greatest experiment in autonomy ever? You don't got to do anything. It really is. We like being in control. And perhaps you fear losing control. The problem, of course, is in reality you're not in control, right? I mean, you, you do realize that you're in control of very, very little. Like, it's very little that you can control. And so by pretending to be in control, we're actually usurping God's role. He is the real God. We're not. We're not supposed to be our own king. We're actually pretty bad at it. And this is a very dangerous position for us to be in. We don't run our lives very well. We need to see that God, the powerful God, the real God, is the rightful king. We need to repent and say, actually, you're much better at being king of my life than me. We need to trust him. 
Perhaps you're like Moses. We don't see it in this text, but we saw it in previous texts. Perhaps you're uh, fearful, afraid to speak, afraid to do your job, afraid to uh, share the gospel or share a hard word of truth. You're afraid that people won't listen. You fear sharing because it only causes trouble, like here. Why do you even send me? Every time I say anything about Jesus or the gospel or anything, it just causes trouble. You fear people. You're afraid of people. You forget. You forget God made a promise to be with you. You forget that God has a plan. You forget that God is the God with absolute power that actually uses what you're saying to work in people's hearts. You can trust him. And lastly, uh, perhaps you're like Israel. You're living in fear. I can imagine the Israelites thinking as Moses comes and says, there's this God that wants to redeem us. He's going to lead us out. They're thinking, that's great. In the moment opposition hits and things get worse, they think, we're idiots for thinking this. You're afraid God can't deliver you into life. Yes, this life is not, I'm living right now, it's not what it should be, sort of low-grade misery. But if I actually trust God and live for him and serve him, I have no idea what that's going to look like. You fear the unknown. You fear change. You fear that a life lived for God will be more difficult or more arduous than the one you live now. You're fearful of losing your current gods. You fear change. You have a hard time believing it's going to be better. And we don't understand. In the text, we have a better father, a stronger God, a better father who loves you and wants you and gives his son for you. And we should trust him. All right, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for...